Welcome to the Life Church Podcast. We are an Acts 2.42 community, a family on a mission to bring the life of Jesus to Warrington. We hope you're ready to hear what God has to say to you today through his word and by his spirit. I'm going to go through three points in my preach today. Uh, if you can switch to the first one that doesn't have that background, uh, Godwin, that'd be great. There we go. I got this professionally downloaded, um, so I haven't put this together because those who know me know this is not what my PowerPoints generally look like. So if you bring up the next slide. So I'm going to go through three things today. The point one is why is it important to understand the resurrection? Why is it important to defend the resurrection? And what difference does the resurrection make? So... <clears throat> As I've said, the resurrection's always been very central to Christian belief. So a good place to start would be with what Jesus told us about his resurrection. And then I'll move to what the early church believed and then bring it up to the present day. So firstly, Jesus predicted his resurrection. So it's sometimes claimed by critics of Christianity that... Jesus was kind of fairly ordinary and then the church later on kind of made this idea that Jesus was resurrected afterwards um, and made him into perhaps more than what he actually was. That's not the case because we see in scripture that Jesus speaks about his resurrection multiple times before it occurs and to his disciples who don't really understand at the time. But then afterwards, when they look back and go, ah, oh, that's, that's what Jesus meant. He was talking about his resurrection. He was talking about rising from the dead. He was talking about being put to death. So if we nip to the next two, three slides, next one. So first one here, Matthew chapter 16, verse 21. He speaks about the chief priests and the teachers of the law putting him to death, and he must be killed on the third day, be raised to life. Mark chapter 9, verse 9, 10. When Jesus is on the transfiguration, uh, he tells his disciples that not to tell anyone about what they've seen until the Son of Man has risen from the dead, and they discuss it among themselves. Next slide. Oh, back one, sorry. We'll get to that later. So Luke 20, uh, John chapter 2, again at the beginning of this, when Jesus is speaking with the Jews in the temple and they're disputing, he speaks about raising the temple within three days. They misunderstand and think he's talking about the temple itself, the Herodian temple, which has taken 46 years to build, and they misunderstand. But afterwards, when Jesus is speaking about this, his disciples remember that he said this and go, ah, okay, that's what he meant. That's what he was referring to. So Jesus himself brings this up very early. Before the resurrection has even happened, he foretells it. So if we skip to the next slide. So this is Luke 24, verse 40 to 48. Now, the first section I'll read here at the top, and I'll talk about it. So this is after Jesus' resurrection. He's on the road to Emmaus. He's speaking to two disciples, and then he disappears as they realize it's him. Jesus then reappears in front of all his disciples, suddenly appears in the room, which is obviously quite startling. And this is what he says. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them, do you have anything to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took and ate it in their presence. Now, the first thing Jesus says is that he encourages them that he is flesh and bone. 
He's a resurrected body. He's not a spirit. He's not a phantom. He's not an illusion. He's not a figment of their imagination. He is bodily risen. He has hands. He has feet. He has wounds in his side. He even eats a piece of fish in front of them to show them that he is not a spirit. Now, if the resurrection is regarding this encounter in the risen Christ, so the very first thing you notice is it's a bodily resurrection, it's not spiritual, and he makes that very clear. So you go on to the next part here, uh, sorry, go back, sorry, Godwin, just talking about here. So this is what he speaks to them afterwards. He says, this is what I told you about while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled about me that is written in the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms. And it says something really interesting. He opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures and then he tells them that the Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day and be resurrected. So I think what's kind of interesting about this is if the resurrection was only about encountering the risen Christ, you would think that this belief would be sufficient for the disciples to spread the gospel. Jesus' appearance alone, you would think, as well, he's here, he's in the flesh, he's real, he's got a body, he said he would do this, that's all we need. Let's go and preach the gospel, let's go and speak about what we've seen. And we still do that in terms of when we preach the gospel today, we still kind of do this when we speak about God, we talk about having a relationship with God, or we talk about having an encounter with God that you're invited to do. But we see that Jesus doesn't just stop with an experience or an encounter, which he does something interesting, which is he opens their minds so they can understand the scripture. And this is what he tells them. So why does Jesus do this? Because The disciples are experiencing the most real encounter of the risen Christ that anyone has ever had or will have until the end of time. And yet Jesus takes the time to go through the scriptures with them, open their minds, and he deems it necessary for them to understand the resurrection from a scriptural perspective, not just an encounter with him. And while I find this encouraging, because while we may not have seen Jesus in the flesh, We can be confident that the scriptures reveal who he is and that is sufficient for us along with an encounter of God in our hearts. So the importance of understanding the resurrection from a scriptural point of view is straight away right from Jesus that we need to get our heads around it. And we see this reflected in the early church. So the very earliest example of this that I can find is in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost where Peter stands up and preaches. Now, the background to this is there are thousands of Jews from all over the known world. They're all coming into Jerusalem. The Holy Spirit falls in them. They begin speaking in tongues. And no one is really quite sure what's going on. It's a bit chaotic. Until Peter stands up and delivers what I would say is the first sermon of the early church, the very first one that's ever been done. So what does Peter go to? If you go forward one and two, Godwin. Next one. There we go. So what Peter does is he immediately speaks about the resurrection. That's the first thing he does immediately, straight away. Right from the first sermon, this is paramount. I won't read the whole thing, but you can see it here. He speaks of God raising Jesus from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep his hold on him. Next slide, Godwin. 
Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. So the very, very first sermon that church has ever been done was about the resurrection straight away. It shows the importance of it. And the reason it's so important is because Jesus' resurrection is the way that we are forgiven for our sins. That Jesus came in human flesh, not a spirit, bore our sins and took the punishment that we deserve is the very essence and meaning of our salvation. It's how we, have, how we are forgiven. It's why we have hope. And the fact that Jesus is resurrected is what sets Christianity as a movement apart from everything else. So you see this in the early church over and over again. It's resurrection and forgiveness of sins come together. That's the significance of it. Jesus conquers death. Jesus defeats sin and makes a way back to the Father. And this is what sets this movement apart. So if you go to the next slide, Godwin. So without the resurrection, the really Christianity would have died, no pun intended, it wouldn't have gone anywhere. And the reason being that if Jesus had simply been a criminal who was crucified in some insignificant backwater Roman province, that's what Judea was considered at the time, it was not the centre of the world, then this would have been no different from any other movements, including other messianic movements. And Jesus was not the first person who the Jewish people thought was the Messiah. Both before and after Jesus, there would come other figures who were hailed as the Messiah. And this is what's interesting about this passage. So in Acts chapter 5, that is behind me, Peter and John have been repeatedly preaching the gospel and the resurrection of God and forgiveness of sins in the temple. They've been doing this for a long time. And the Sanhedrin, who were the ruling council, Jewish leaders who were based in the temple, were getting really wound up by this because they told them not to do it and they'd kept doing it and they told them not to do it and they kept doing it. So eventually they arrest them and they're brought before them and they have a go at Peter and John and say, we told you not to preach this, what do you think you're doing? Why are you doing this? And Peter speaks to them and what does Peter say? The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead, the resurrection. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and saviour that he might bring Israel to repentance and forgive their sins, forgiveness of sin. Again, it's resurrection, it's the forgiveness of sins. The Sanhedrin are furious with this. And they are planning to execute Peter and John. That's how far this has got. They're willing to put them to death because they're so sick of what they're preaching about the resurrection. And then a Pharisee called Gamaliel stands up and speaks. And it's really interesting what he says because what he does in this is he reminds them of previous messianic movements that have failed in the past. This is what he's referring to. So what he says here, you can see it in bold, some time ago, Theudas appeared, claiming to be somebody, and about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed, all his followers were dispersed, and it came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the census and led a band of people in revolt. He too was killed, and all his followers were scattered. So the two points he makes during the speech are these. He says to the Sanhedrin, we've seen this before. It's not new, it's not novel, it's happened before, we've seen what goes on. And he says, we know what usually happens when the leaders of these movements die. So what he says is, 
other figures have gained a following, the, the followers are scattered, and it goes nowhere. And what you have to bear in mind is, in terms of what happens with Jesus' disciples, at first it seems to follow that pattern. If you look at the Garden of Gethsemane, the followers are scattered, Jesus is crucified, they're in hiding for fear of the Jews, and everything seems to have gone to pot. And you look at the Jesus on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24, and he's speaking to these disciples, and they're all downcast, and he's going, why are you downcast? It's like, well, we'd hoped Jesus was the Messiah, but he's dead, he's crucified. It's one more messianic movement down the pan because this just keeps happening and it goes nowhere. But suddenly, these men, who they know as having been with Jesus, Peter and John, are suddenly appearing in the temple every day. And they're preaching something outrageous, which is that this Jesus is not dead but alive, that he's been resurrected. They appear full of faith and boldness. They can't be stopped. They can't be dissuaded. They don't seem to care about being jailed or punished or even put to death. These men have gone from hiding and cowering from the Jewish authorities to standing right in front of them in their backyard going, do what you want, we're going to preach Christ resurrected and we don't care. How do you get to that point when everything in terms of human logic say this movement should be extinct? It should go the way of the dodo just like every other movement that's gone before. He's dead, he's gone. And the difference is, it wasn't, Jesus isn't dead and gone. That's the difference that it makes. Christianity as a movement did not go away. It didn't die. It evolved into the most explosive, countercultural, transformative movement the world had ever seen. And we're testament to that today. Why? Because Jesus was raised from the dead. And his resurrection ensures our salvation, our hope, and our future resurrection. So you keep going, Godwin. It's just a summary there, which I won't read out. So why is it important to defend the resurrection, is my next point. So we've established that it's very important. So the world in which the early church existed, it was predominantly a Greco-Roman culture. So there's a whole blend of philosophies, ideas that are going to compete with Christian beliefs. So it's important that you establish firmly this movement, what we believe, over and against what is currently in culture. Again, not much has really changed. It's always been this way with Christians being outcasts and being this sort of weird minority in, in culture. Now, in the, if you're in the early church, this presents a bit of a problem. And now that other beliefs are coming into the church... How do we know which teaching about Jesus is authentic? It's a fair point. So the easiest, one of the simple ways to solve this is to say that whoever the apostles who were with Jesus and listened to him and taught what he said, well, they're the ones who spent time with him. They'll know best what Jesus said. They can verify or not verify the truth about Jesus. So, and Jesus has opened their minds to the scriptures to understand about him and understand about the resurrection. Well, that makes sense that we would trust what the apostles say and consider what they say as authentic. And this stance evolved over time into what the entire teaching series has been about, which is the Apostles' Creed, a summary of what it is that they taught. 
The most striking example of Paul laying this out is in Corinthians chapter 15, which is a famous passage which Paul writes to the Corinthian church. If you, yeah, that's the one. So I'm not going to read this all, but you can see in here, by all means, read it yourselves as I'm speaking. So a key cornerstone of the new faith that was, as Christ is resurrected, we can be sons and daughters and co-heirs with him. We will also be resurrected with Jesus, as he was. We will ascend to heaven to be with the Father, as he did. This is our hope in the resurrection, that death is not the end, and the penalty for our sin has been paid by Jesus. Within this passage lies the heart of why the resurrection is critical to Christian theology. He affirms in this that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried and he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And they appeared to many in the flesh, physically, to the apostles. And the crucial words that Paul says, which is up there, are this. He says, for if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. And he says these, what could be devastating words. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. Paul understands very well that if the resurrection of Christ is false, there is no forgiveness of sins, there is no hope, and our faith is futile. Furthermore, death has not been defeated. The curse of sin still lies upon us and Jesus' death and resurrection hasn't broken it. So everything we understand about Christ and about our state in relation to him hinges on this. And the opponents of the church knew this too. They know straight away. You see right from the start of the church, right up to the present day where you see skeptics criticizing the resurrection. When you look at when the soldiers who are guarding the tomb the night before Jesus is resurrected and they come to the high priest and give their account of what's happened, of this miraculous event. And what do the priests tell them? They say, say the disciples came at night and stole the body and we'll spread that around and we'll keep you out of trouble. And it's still a theory that in some way persists to this day. So... Opposition to the resurrection has begun almost as soon as it came into being. It's always been this way. So I'm going to try and explain a defense, sort of a defense of the resurrection. I'm going to do it through the medium of football. Yes, it's a gamble. I understand, but I promise I will try and make it make sense. Here we go. Next slide, Goblin. Right, okay. I'll explain the background to this. Now, Liverpool and Chelsea are playing a cup final this afternoon after church, I'll be going and watching it in the pub with Taylor. Now, it's a cup final, so someone has to win the match. You don't need to know much about football to understand this. It means that someone will win the match today. Uh, so that has to happen. Now, if I say this, either Liverpool or Chelsea will win the cup final this afternoon. Okay. Now, that's a claim I'm making. Okay. Is it particularly decisive as a claim? No, not really. I mean, it's, it's true, but anyone could really claim that and it could go either way. We don't, it doesn't really kind of, you wouldn't put much faith in it or much stock in it as an explanation. So what it means is that it's not really much of a claim. Would you really put your, your trust in it? 
And if you went, if I was a betting man, which I'm not, and I went to uh, bookies to put a bet on and said, okay, what do you want to do? And I said, I want to bet that either Liverpool or Chelsea will win the cup final. Right, okay. Well, that's not really a bet, is it? Because you just, it could go either way. You're not saying anything decisive. Okay, the point is, you're not making a decisive claim about the outcome. It's quite vague. And in some ways, this is not from me, this is from another preacher, so I will put that right now to avoid claims of plagiarism. But there's a preacher who emphasised the importance of Jesus' bodily resurrection. Because he says if Jesus had been, said he would spiritually rise from the dead, it's not really a falsifiable claim. It's like this. So if someone said, well, hang on, the, the body's been in the, decaying in the tomb for three days. Ah, well... But if you remember what Jesus said, he said he'd spiritually rise again. So he may have risen, he may not, but we don't know. But certainly it's vague enough that Jesus may have spiritually risen. Again, it's not a very decisive claim if Jesus were to say that. It's not really provable either way. Now, next slide. Okay, now, I won't read this out, but let's say, for example... What this is, is a ridiculously convoluted scenario that would never happen in any football match ever, has never happened, would be completely ludicrous. And if I went to a bookies and put a bet that that would happen, they would have a little giggle, bite my hand off and encourage me to put as much money on that bet as they possibly can, because that bet is going to fail and they will get my money. So you read through all of this... And the point is, that is an outrageous claim to make. That's, that's not going to happen. And if you made that, it's so easily falsifiable. It's so easy for someone to go, well, that didn't happen, that didn't happen, that didn't happen, that's not happened. So what you're claiming is nonsense. It doesn't add up. <clears throat> now, who would be brave enough to put their faith in that and go to bookies and put your life savings on that scenario occurring. <laughs> no, they're not. But hopefully you understand the point behind that. That Jesus said he would bodily rise again. And there is a tremendous threat to that statement. Because all you have to do is go, oh, okay, your Messiah's raised. Well, there's his body in the tomb. Well, he's not the Messiah, is he? That's not going anywhere. It's false. What you believe is a lie. So for Jesus, before he's even resurrected, to make that claim that he will bodily rise again, you watch three days, I'm going to rise again. It's outrageous claim to make. And it's so easily falsifiable. It's so easy to say that that won't happen. And it could be so easy to prove that it didn't happen. But... Let's see what Paul concludes in the second half of the passage. He says, Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. And he says at the bottom here, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Jesus made an outrageous claim and he backed it up.
the tomb was empty. He's not there, is what the angels said. What did they say to him? He's not here, he's risen. Why are you looking for him? He's gone. Well, not gone, but you understand what I mean. So, the last slide here. If you look at it, what difference does the resurrection make or what difference should it make in our lives? I'm just going to list some things through here and then I'm going to give a, a story, a quick example, and then we'll finish. So the resurrection means hope. It means whatever difficulties we encounter, we will be raised with Christ and with God for eternity. You can take that to the bank. It means when we suffer from illness and death, it isn't meaningless or endless. We will one day be raised with a new body in a place where there will be no more suffering and tears. It means the terror of death has been defeated. We no longer need to fear physical or spiritual death because Christ has paid that price for us. We can point others to the hope of the resurrection and we can have confidence in the truth of the claims of Christianity that will empower us to spread the gospel and trust that the power that raised Christ from the dead also lives within us, which is what it says in the scriptures. And the very last thing I'm going to speak about is an analogy. Has anyone heard of the hymn, Abide With Me? Abide with me, fast forward even time. So we're, very, we're probably very familiar with it. For those who don't know, it's a very, very well-known hymn. Very, very well-known hymn. And it was written by a man called Henry Francis Light. It was written about 1847. And when he wrote this, Henry Francis Light was about 26 years old. So as a man, he should be in his physical prime. Your physical prime's about 26 to 30. Unfortunately, with Henry Francis Light, he suffered with ailments most of his life, whether it was asthma, whether it was sort of respiratory diseases. And ultimately, he ended up with tuberculosis, which in those days was incurable. If, if you had tuberculosis, you were going to die. And Henry Francis Light, a couple of months before his death, wrote the hymn, Abide With Me. And it'll make sense when I put the last slide on. So Henry Francis Light is lying in a bed. He's coughing bits of his lung up. He's coughing up blood. He's probably in agony. He may well be musing about how unfair life is and what a wretched state that he's in. But he writes in one of the verses to abide with me, he writes these words. If you pull it up, he said, oh, I always get emotional at some point during the preach. I thought I'd avoid it, and it's right at the end. I promise it's not in on purpose. He says, I fear no foe with thee at hand to bless. Ills have no weight and tears no bitterness. Where is death's sting? Where grave thy victory? I triumph still if thou abide with me. So, <laughs> how does a 26-year-old man in the prime of his life, lying in bed, coughing his lungs up in agony, write a verse like that? Because the resurrection is true and the resurrection is hope. And when we're filled with the same power that raised Christ from the dead, we can put the same trust as Henry Francis Light did in that statement. 
We've come to the end of this week's message. We hope you've been impacted and inspired. Please keep up to date with everything that's happening by visiting our website at www.livechurchwarrington.com.